Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we, I am a uh, dry and cracked vessel, but your word is um, living water, and you say that it nourishes and um, feeds our soul. And Lord, I, I ask in Jesus' name today that you bring your word and your spirit, your peace, your joy to these people who you care so much about. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I think I recognize everybody. If you're new this morning, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> hi to everybody who's online, too. Um, yeah, as Manny said, we're, we're nearly done with Genesis. Uh, next week, I will... Well, sorry, the week after next, I'll do the, uh, the wrap-up and summary of Genesis, which I'm pretty excited about. But it's been, it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Like we've, we've learned some stuff going through Genesis, and it's been uh, eye-opening in, in many ways, and I, I hope it's given you um, perspective in how you read your Bible. Because I think, for one, one thing, we can't understand the end unless we understand the beginning, because God started the beginning because He knew what He was going to do in the end, and it's all, it's all in mind. And that's a lot of what I have... Um, I've been thinking about as we look at chapter 49, the, the major lesson here is what God's doing is bigger than you think. And when you think you know what He's doing, it's still bigger than that. He's just got this, he's got this whole different perspective. He's, he's not like us, even though we're in His image. Here's a fun little exercise. Like when, when I say God or Heavenly Father, then you get this concept in your mind that you're very comfortable with. That's, you know, this, and it may be sharp and crisp or it may be kind of fuzzy, but you get this a, a picture or there's something, something there that you use in your head as that placeholder for God. Well, whatever picture you have, it's completely wrong because you can't possibly get your head around this God. And it's, uh, it's an interesting prayer exercise. Next time you have a chance to pray quietly without interruption, position yourself in front of your Father in heaven, and every time you think you know who He is, then push that away and say, no, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. And you'll find that he, you get, you get the, just this, this, this humbling experience because he'll meet you there because he wants you to know him. And we get so close-minded about what we think he is and what we think he's doing. We take his, his gospel and we think we have it boiled down to this little thing. And then one of the things we've learned in Genesis is, no, it's a much bigger deal. He's got a lot more going on. He just, he just knows a lot about the future and a lot about the world that we don't know. And that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 49. This is a, it's a strange passage. It's not taught on very often. Most of you, if you open up Genesis 49, you have this, this heading where it says, Jacob blesses his sons. 
And you compare it to when Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh back in the previous chapter, then he says, uh, you know, he, he pronounces a blessing over them. He says, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life along to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. He pronounces blessing over them. Johnny did a great job with that. And in them, let my name be carried on. And so he's, he's calling upon his God, pronouncing blessing, passing the blessing that's been on, that's on him, passing it to them. And that's, typically, that's what a good blessing looks like. We want that. Well, then this next one, it says, Jacob blesses his sons. But this is, a, this is a really weird way to bless your sons. It's most of the words he's saying, he's not, he's not calling upon God and pronouncing blessing on them. He's prophesying over them. So when we look at the beginning... Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together. And this is interesting because that word gather is at the beginning and end and middle. This passage has a lot of gathering, assembling, pulling together. Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So he's on his deathbed. The previous day or so-ish, he knows he's dying and he's actually sick. He's not dying just of old age. He has an illness. And he, um, call, he calls Joseph to bring Ephraim Manasseh. That's where he says, Joseph, you're getting this double portion. And the, way, the, me- the mechanism, by the way we're doing that, is instead of you getting an inheritance, your two sons are going to be called by my name, and they're each going to get an inheritance. So you get the double portion that way. And that's, that's how it goes. There's no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. If you are confused about that, you can flip over to uh, First Chronicles. I think it's chapter 5. I really should mark these before I, if I'm thinking about them beforehand. In the, the first part of First Chronicles, they, um, they outline or they go through and give the, uh, the genealogies and they give some commentary on all these tribes and where they came from and where they were in the land. So it's actually the first you know, four or five chapters of First Chronicles are really interesting companion reading to chapter 49 of Genesis. It says, um, uh, start in verse 1 of chapter 5, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, where he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to Joseph, to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Then Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So that's the weird convoluted situation we have. It's laid out right here for you in Chronicles. So he starts, so he gathers his uh, children together and says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's not the same thing as saying, I'm going to call upon my God and call his blessing. He just says, I'm going to say what's going to happen to you. And this is an interesting prophecy because it shifts here in your scripture, what you'll see, you can actually see it in the layout, he shifts into Hebrew poetry. And there's this parallelism in the poetry where they, it's kind of this back, back and forth, um, almost a self-call and repeat sort of poetry where they state and restate, and you see it a lot in the Psalms, and he shifts into that form. And so we have to shift from trying to interpret historical narrative, which is what we've usually been doing, to trying to understand a prophetic poem. That, and that's what he's doing, and he's using his sons to lay out this form of blessing. And we'll go through each of them, but the, the mistake that is so often made here is to think it's just about the son. 
And then some people zoom out and say, well, it's about the son, but it's also about the tribe, which is also true. But there's also about more than that, as we'll show. And there are a few clues along the way. So he says, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. He calls himself Jacob and Israel. And he's speaking about them collectively, but first, one at a time. Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. But he says that. There's that defiling is a, a really, really big deal. And there's, a, and there's a good sermon that could be had here on the importance of sexual sin. But it's also really, really symbolic. And if you want a counter passage, go to Ezekiel 16 sometime. And you'll see what the defiling of the bed means to God. And that, that ha- it's a spiritual sin. And that spiritual sin has spiritual implications. That's what, so what did Reuben actually do? Well, back in... Um, I think it's right around uh, Genesis 35, you'll see Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, his father's concubine, who also happens to be, I think, the mother of Gad and Asher, which probably made things really awkward for, in their family household for a while, because he literally slept with the mother of some of his half-brothers. A lot of people say, why? Well, I think, I think there's an answer, and this isn't explicit in Scripture, but if you look at the timeline of what's happening, I think the reason Reuben did that, he did it right after his mother died. His mother was Leah. So Reuben's a firstborn. He stands to inherit the blessing. He's the firstborn, the preeminent child from the, the, the first wife. He's not the favorite, but he's the firstborn. So all legally, he has all the rights. Well, I think what happens is Leah dies, and he immediately becomes jealous of the position that Bilhah is being elevated to, and so he, he disqualifies her and her line by defiling her. I think that's what he did, because he's, he's not super impulsive. And it made Jacob so upset that he said, you're now disqualified from being the firstborn. Reuben, who was trying to protect him and his brothers, he, they wanted the preeminence in the household. I think that's what was going on, actually disqualified himself. But he also disqualified Billa and her sons. So it made major problem that he caused there. Then he goes on. Goes, he moves on to Simeon and Levi. Now, these first five are in order, by the way, of, in birth order, and then something interesting happens. So he goes to Simeon and Levi, and he's a, these are the only two he speaks of collectively. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or the word there could be conspiracy. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. So, what happened there? Well, this goes back to uh, the story of Dinah, or Dina. Remember talking about that one, and how um, she was defiled by Shechem, and uh, uh, Simeon and Levi, in wanting to defend her honor, slaughtered the entire city. But they did it in a very devious way. And the bigger problem was that he says that they really like cruelty. They like slaughtering. They enjoy it. And there's a lot of nuance to the language he's using here. And so he's saying, the, the blessing can't fall to you either because you guys have disqualified yourselves because you've become blood-soaked, bloodthirsty, violent men. And there were a lot of other... That wasn't the only conflict. There were lots of 
conflicts going on around this time, so they may have had a, a pattern of that. So again, not exactly a blessing, and he's pronouncing something instead. And, it's, and it does happen, if you go read in the Chronicles passage, the tribes, especially the tribe of uh, Simeon, just sort of scatters throughout the land and never really gets established in a, in a meaningful way compared to a lot of the other tribes. And Levi becomes the priestly tribe. So he gets the job eternally, well, not eternally, but temporarily for generations and generations of slaughtering for, in, as God's wrath. So he's got that wrathful slaughtering role, but he doesn't have land in the, in the promised land. He doesn't have, because he's, he's throughout the land. Then he moves on to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. So Judah, the name Judah, it means praise to Yahweh, and it's Yahuda. So he says, Judah, your brothers will huda you. That's, that's what he's saying. He's playing on the, the phrasing of praise. He says, you who are named after praise are the one who will be praised. Now, was Judah a perfect guy? No, far from it, far from it. So that's one of the clues that we know that he's talking beyond just the individual here. There's something much more important going on. Your brothers will praise you, and your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So now he's going forward in time and ma making a collective about an individual. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Some weird things with the language here. I like, I like listening to the um, Hebrew rabbis teach on this because they talk so much about the words. Um, that word lioness, it's not actually a female word, and so there's some confusion on why it gets translated as lioness. It, it, what it means is strength or honor. So he's saying, you are young, but you are also fierce. You are young, but you are also mature and powerful. Then he goes on, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. That word tribute is used one time in all of scripture in this phrase, and it's the word Shiloh. Shiloh is also the name of the city that uh, ultimately becomes where um, Samuel is when we studied First and Second Samuel, and it's what it means. It, the word is it means the one to whom the honor really belongs. That's why they summarize it as tribute. But that's when you go back to the roots of it. It's saying uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one to whom it really belongs comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Notice it's. It's going beyond the nation of Israel there, saying it, it, the peoples, will, there's somebody coming through Judah who's the one that the rule really belongs to. Meanwhile, until that time, then Judah's going to have the ruling position in Israel. When does Israel actually legally lose their ruler? It's Herod is the one who actually says, no, nope, I'm in charge of Israel now. And that's right around the time Jesus was born. Then he goes into this interesting uh, symbolism. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What's something you don't do with wine? You don't wash your clothes in it. That's a weird thing to say. 
It's, I mean, there's a lot of good things you can do with wine, but it's not, I mean, it's, how much wine would you have to have? Dan and I have seen the largest wine barrel in the world. Who else, who's seen that in Heidelberg, Germany? It's a, yeah, you, that's, that is really something. Because you go down and, and you come around the corner and there's this enormous wine barrel and you're like, wow, that is really big. And they're like, that's not the one. And you keep going, you go to the next room and it's like, whoa. <laughs> I've, I've lived in apartments much smaller than that large wine barrel. Um, that's, it's true. It's, like, it's, it's, it's massive. So even with that much wine, they weren't washing their clothes in it. So what is, what is wine? I, he's using this, this water-wine-washing symbology. Keep that in mind. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Commentators have a tough time with this one because Zebulun's territory was landlocked. And they're like, what? Um, there's a couple of, of interesting things about it. One is Zebulun overlapped with Dan and actually kind of absorbed the tribal territory of Dan, which did kind of make it go from the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean. It's squinting a little, but it's true. But what's more interesting is if you go to um, Ezekiel, then Ezekiel prophesies that in the millennium, then Zebulun will be on the shore. So who knows how far out this one really is. Then he goes, uh, Issachar is a strong donkey. I'm in uh, verse 14, by the way. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Again, kind of a weird blessing. Um, he's... The, the, the symbolism here is... Issachar is stubborn and works hard, and he was put in a really good place, and he became so absorbed by that that he wound up being enslaved to trying to maintain his comfort. And that's pretty much what happened. They did wind up being in a lot of forced labor situations, and they do have a really beautiful portion of the land of Israel. And it is actually between two mountains, so there's all kinds of symbolism there that maybe those are the two burdens. But basically, it says you're strong and stubborn, but you kind of lazied out here, and so you sort of become controlled by the people around you. And that absolutely happened to Issachar, to the tribe of Issachar in the Promised Land. Dan, Dan means judge. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path. So it starts off good, Dan's like, all right, and then it goes to like, also, you're <laughs> a serpent, which is an enemy. That, um, that's, serpents are always enemies or sin in Scripture. He shall be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. That's basically like you're going to be a judge, but you're not going to have good judgment. That's kind of rough. And then Jacob says something really interesting. He just stops here and he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Or the word really is hope. And what's the word salvation? Yeshua. He says, I hope for Yeshua, O Lord. He just takes that pause and plants that there. Raiders shall raid Gad, which is funny because Gad means attack or troop. So he's, there's a lot of uh, symbolism with the names here. But he shall raid at their heels. Does anybody have a different something? Does it say something different there about victory? So the heel symbolized, weirdly, symbolized victory. And the reason it symbolized victory was because, remember um, when you had uh, Judah's sons, when, when his twin sons were born in that uh, bizarre affair, 
then one started to be born, and they said, this is the firstborn, and then the other was born, and so there was confusion. So they made a rule in Israel after that, this is all the rabbinical tradition anyway, that you can't declare victory of being the firstborn until your heel's out. Like, you got to get all the way out, or you're not going to have victory. So the, the heel became to represent victory. Remember, Jacob was also called the heel grabber. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. That's all I have to say about that. And there's, um, there's some people who have taken this so seriously that that royal delicacies word, they thought it's kindness sort of sounds like the, the oil word. And there are people who have tried to find oil in the land of Asher. They're like, it's got to be here. But that's not really what it says. It's just a, a rich wealth abundance. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. That uh, word fawns really is beautiful words of good change is what it means. It's not directly meaning the offspring of a doe. So kind of a strange thing to say. Some of these guys, by the way, he's, getting, he's putting them out of order at this part. He starts in order and ends in order, but these middle five, there's, he has five in order and five out of order and then two in order, which is a clue. Then he goes to Joseph. Who's Joseph the typology of? He's Christ. He's the type of Christ in Genesis. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a, a fruitful bough by a spring. So we're getting that uh, water is coming back. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Listen, he gives five titles to God right here. Mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. So, Very important messianic passage there. Blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, which is a strange thing to say. Blessings of the breasts of the, and of the womb. What they're saying there is there's different kinds of blessings. The breasts in the womb always represent um, fruitfulness and abundance, but in a, a worldly, familial kind of way. He's saying there's a blessing beneath that that's much deeper and more important. So he says there's a deeper, mysterious blessing that comes in this case. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. That's a weird thing to say to your son. He's saying, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents and the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, that's the crown, and on the, crown, on the brow of him, that's also the crown, him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey and at evening, dividing the spoil. That's all he has to say about Benjamin. <laughs> he just bookends it there. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, in verse 28. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah. I like this because Machpelah means um, pairing. It means putting two together. And he goes and, and he lists the pairs who have been uh, buried there. 
to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought in the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there they buried Leah, and then Jacob's going to be buried next to her. Why isn't he uh, buried next to Rachel? Remember, she died in childbirth with Benjamin, and she died somewhere on the, on the road to Bethlehem, Ephrata, and there was a mo- monument there. So I like that picture of when Mary was, uh, when Mary and Joseph were going down to Bethlehem, she's about to have this baby, they would have gone right by the monument to Rachel who died in childbirth there, which would have given her some interesting perspective. So he's going to be buried next to Leah in the field, in the cave that is in it, that was brought, bought from the Hittites. Now, there was a lot of conflict. Esau, well, legendarily, Esau wanted this land for himself, so they, they're always really emphasizing, I have the legal right to this land. This is mine. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up, that word is gathered. He gathered his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What does that breathed his last thing. That's, it's a strange thing to say because it's, it's a single word and it's used, you know, we use it euphemistically all the time uh, or we use it uh, colloquially, not euphemistically, all the time. And when we say he breathed his last, the word is an, an exhalation. And the reason it started being called breathed his last, um, does anybody have anything different there, by the way? There's another phrase that gets used a lot. Colloquially. In the King James, it says, he gave up the ghost. And that's because of the same word being used when Jesus breathed his last and he said, I give up my spirit. So he exhaled his spirit and then he's gathered to his people, which is something that we say in the Bible, but we don't say it in our culture a lot. Why? Well, what is it saying about death? We have this concept, this, um, you know, Western. Greek Christianity concept that, uh, where we've tried to say, okay, when you die, what exactly happens? Um, and, and there's a lot of controversy over that, but we have this idea that like you shoot up to heaven or something like that. But then we get these weird passages in Scripture, that's not really what happened. Some people say they were resting and they didn't want to be disturbed. That's what happened with the, the ghost of, uh, of Samuel when Saul used a medium to call him. But very consistently, They say when he died, it says he's gathered to his people. So there's this, the Hebrew concept of death was there's the grave, which is where your body goes, and then there's Sheol, which is where everybody goes together, which is not the same thing as heaven or paradise. Or maybe it could be the same as paradise, but not the same thing as heaven necessarily. There's a lot of uh, interesting theology around that if it's, Interesting to you, there are some good places to go, but I'm not claiming to, to know all the answers. What I am saying is don't get caught into, don't get trapped into these simple little concepts because they're not necessarily what the Bible says. This says he's gathered to his people, and they say that for a reason. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's not the same thing as you know, what we get taught about uh, you know, when growing up in Sunday school, how somebody dies and goes to heaven and plays a harp and has wings and becomes an angel or something. Like none, that's not in the Bible. That's our squinting and overlaying with different mythologies. Okay, so that's the passage. And you, you notice I, I, there's a lot of stuff I, I could have dug down on, but didn't. But the, the way this makes sense 
is to realize this is God kind of memorializing a letter to his people about their people. So when somebody's prophesying, they're speaking God's truth. And if you read it as God speaking to the nation of Israel, then all of a sudden a lot of these analogies start to line up and make sense, and you start to understand why he said what he said. So I'm going to take the liberty of just kind of simplifying the language a little bit, and we're going to read this, if I can read my own handwriting, like a letter from God to his people. Because I think that's what it is. And I'm going to go in exactly the same order, and you can follow along as you want. I'm just pulling the language together a little bit and filling in some gaps, and you, you, know, you can take it or leave it as you want. Okay. Be gathered together and listen to your father, you family of Israel, my inheritance. You are my firstborn, my strength, powerful above other nations, but you were not faithful. You turned to worship others, even in your own family. You became blood-soaked and violent, cruel, unlike me, your father. You killed for your own glory, so you were divided and scattered in the land. Then I helped you subdue your enemies and restore righteous strength to the land, a maturity beyond your years, a great strength, a powerful threat to all who oppose. That ruling strength will remain with you. It will not depart until the one to whom it really belongs arrives. You are my family. You, my family, are an ungrown donkey. You'll be tied to me, the true vine. That ruler, the true vine, will by wine and water show true cleansing and demonstrate righteousness. I'll even have him change water into wine and ride a young donkey so you don't miss it. But you'll have the land and territory. But you, you stubborn donkey that you are, will lay down, give yourself over to making a legacy, and simply carry the burden. You'll be the judge. You'll judge the people, but your judgment will be tainted so the people go backward, not forward. My only hope is Yeshua, O Lord. Then, fighting, exile. You'll fight and be driven away, but you'll fight back and snatch some victory. Then I send you out to bear beautiful, truthful words of fruitfulness. Christ arrives with overcoming, obstacle-reaching fruit. Oh, they'll fight him. They have the arrows, but he has the bow and the arrows. I, the mighty one, will establish him as the stone and the shepherd. I'm here to help you and bless you directly from heaven. I bless you from deep spiritual blessing, deeper than the physical abundance of the womb or breasts. This blessing is far beyond the blessings provided to the earthly man. Those deep, powerful blessings crown the Messiah, his pierced brow, and raise him above his brothers. Then we go to war. I take it all for myself, and at the end, I share it with you. Do you see how that comes together? What's, what, is he, what is this passage doing? It's showing that God has this overarching plan, and we are part of it, and we're constantly making it this, this anthropocentric, anthropocentric um, concept where we're at the middle of it, but we're not really at the middle of it. But instead, what we are is we're, we're showing, without even realizing it, 
this, this beautiful narrative that he's put together. He just gave, in this passage, he's prophesying the entire future of the nation of Israel and what's going to happen, and the, and the Messiah is going to come. He's prophesying the good things that will happen and the bad things that will happen to them. He's prophesying the, the, the ruling authority that will come out, but also the scattering and the exile and the conflict. But at the end, it's a promise that he draws it all back to himself so that he can share it with his family. And doesn't that sound a lot like the rest of Scripture? That's the, the, the promise we see over and over and over in Scripture in terms of what he's really doing. And so I, I keep coming back to that idea that whatever we th- think we really know what God is doing, it's bigger than that. And whatever we think our lives are about or that something's gone all wrong then, and, and we're confused, he actually has it exactly where he wants it. And we can trust him. Think about the confusion that some of those um, brothers would have had. Like, this is a deathbed blessing I get? You're a donkey? Like, that, <laughs> I've been called a donkey by my dad, but hopefully not on his deathbed, right? It's just, it's, 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 it seems so, so jumbled and so confusing, and it's like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. But then, if you have, the, if you have God's perspective... It all lines up. And Joseph is such a great example of that. In, in, in Genesis, you know, look how Joseph is so elevated and established, and his final pronouncement of Joseph is, you're set apart from your brothers, because Joseph is that Christ figure. Joseph was the one who has been favored from the beginning to the extent that the other brothers don't like him. Well, Jesus is the favored son of God, to the extent that there were others in heaven that rebelled because they didn't like the glory he was getting. And they thought that they could destroy him, just like his brothers thought they could destroy Joseph, thought they would be rid of him, thought that they had finally resumed their right to the inheritance and tried to take it for themselves. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. But somehow, in that whole process of destruction and humiliation and suffering, he somehow still manages to be not only the king but also their salvation. And he's set apart from them, always set apart and above them. Joseph legally became the inheritor. He became the blessed one who got the the better portion of his father. Uh, And his father did that by, uh, by not naming Joseph, but by taking his two sons and having them stand in his place. I haven't fully tried to understand what that's about because it's such a singular... We don't get a lot of case studies like that in Scripture, so I hesitate to go too far trying to interpret it. But I don't hesitate to say that th- this huge overarching picture is confusing when you're in the middle of it. The way we got to that narrative, I didn't rearrange anything. Jacob rearranged them. He rearranged the, the people in the middle so that this was the emerging narrative. But this passage doesn't get looked at like that very often. Everything he said does happen to them, to their tribe in the promised land. But that's not all that he's saying. And Scripture does this thing so frequently where we get these these layered, wrapped prophecies, and they don't seem to make any sense at all until after the fact. But then after the fact, you realize you're still before the fact. It hasn't really happened the way he said. He's He's going to put it all together in a giant overarching narrative, and at the end of it, the the resulting final answer will be, yeah, Jesus is the king. 
that's the end of the story. That's the, the main point. And then he says, yep, and everything I'm taking, I'm sharing it with everybody. I'm, I'm blessing everybody who will have me as their king. Everybody who wants to be part of my kingdom. And everybody who doesn't want to misses out on being part of the kingdom. That's precisely the story we get in Joseph. Let's have the worship team come on up. But the, the, um, the, these are God's people. This is his family. And, the, and this is his, his like the, the people who he's, he's as, as engaged with you, as anybody possibly could expect. He talks directly to Jacob, appears to him multiple times, has a direct line, and still Jacob has no idea what's going on most of the time. He's confused and he has to be reassured. Jacob didn't know his son was alive for all those years. Even though he's a prophet, he didn't know. Why? Because God had a plan for what he was doing. And so he had Jacob know what he was supposed to know and not know what he wasn't supposed to know. And Jacob had to just trust that God's plan was good, even though it hurt a lot in the middle. And I don't know about you, but I, I think more than ever before, there are a whole lot of people, not just in this room, but outside of this room, who are going, why does everything seem so confusing right now? Why does it seem like nobody quite knows what's going on? Why does it seem like we're on the precipice of something, and by the way, I'm tired of being confused, and I'm tired of not knowing, and I, all I can do is trust my God. Can you imagine not having a God to trust? How like, I, I would be literally out of my mind if I didn't have a strong belief that there is a point and that their narrative will ultimately make sense. And I think if we pay attention, I, I think we can see some of the sense of it. I think it does make sense, but that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean every moment's going to make sense. It doesn't mean you're not going to get called a donkey sometimes or that, that you're going to make a mistake or that you're going to have poor judgment sometimes. Because all, all that was in there, in his family, but he said, but don't worry, I'm reconciling it. I'm bringing a true rock, a true vine, a true cleansing, a true righteousness, and a blessing the level of which you can't even understand. And true royalty. But, you can't make that happen. Only God can make that happen. All he wants from us in the meantime is trust and obedience. And to know that Jesus was king and is king and will be king no matter what anybody tries to do. And we, he doesn't call us to defend or establish that kingdom. That's his job. He just calls us to Trust him and follow him and do what's right and be kind to each other. That's what he wants us to do. Let's sing this first song together and then I'll return and lead us in communion. I think I've shared a, a little bit of this, but not a lot and maybe not all of it from the pulpit. But So about, um, about a year ago, then um, I, want, I was, took some time to pray and fast and meditate and went um, off into a cave in the mountains for three days and three nights. And 
the Lord will meet you when you really seek Him. But the part of this I want to share is I had, I had so many questions, so many questions, so much theology I was trying to work out and things I was trying to understand. I was, I was asking God to like open my eyes, help me see this, help me understand this, please show me, please explain this to me, please give me wisdom in this and in that. And I'm trying to fit all these pieces together. And there was um, a particularly profound moment where he spoke to me more distinctly than I had ever, ever heard. And it was the most real experience because when he speaks in you and you know it's his voice. And all he said to me was my name. That's all he said. But I could, but the way he said it answered all of my questions because I understood how he feels about us. And everything made sense after that. Not everything all the time, but the, the, the real things I was wrestling with made sense. And the, the main key to it was he really loves you. Like, like really, like more than you can possibly imagine. He actually is love. He is. And when you're his, you're part of that, and you're not separate. You're part of him, and he loves you. And I, I just, I don't have a lot more profound theology than that, because that's, that's what we really need from our Creator, and that's what we're always looking for on earth. And then when you see that, you start to see it everywhere, in everybody that you see. And you start to see how He understands the suffering and how it was so necessary for Him to, to live a complete human experience and be subjected to all the suffering. And that's why we're told that we, He understands what we went through, not just because He set a good example, but because you're never separate from Him. And so He feels what you feel, and He knows what you know. And he knows the hurt on every side of it. And if you, if you don't believe that about your creator, a lot of this stuff isn't going to make sense. You can't take the gospel and turn it just into a system of reasoning. You can, but it loses so much of its power. So then you look at the, the words we sing about Jesus being my redeemer. Okay, but why do I have to sing it? Well, you have to sing it because if you really believe that, then you can't help but sing it. You can't help it. Because what else would you do? Not sing it? It's impossible. And that's why, that's why we worship, and that's why we do communion. And, and you see that taking communion really matters. Not because it's magical wafers or magical juice. But it really, really matters that we are physically, tangibly submitting our bodies to a reminder of what Christ submitted His body to for us. 
It's very, very important. Not just head-wise, but it changes something in you, just like baptism. Really important. I'm going to go ahead and say, if you want to be baptized at this church, there's a ticking clock. We'll do it, but you've got to let us know. But that, that act of baptism, super important. Not because it's magical, but because of what it takes in your spirit to say, yes, I'll obey. And it just comes back to, we don't, we don't have any other hope. But in Christ, we have all the hope. Any good thing you could possibly hope for is resolved for your benefit in Christ. And if, there's, if that's all you ever remember from anything I've ever said, some of you have been here a long time, I've heard going on 80-odd hours of me talking. If all you hear is, He really does love you. He really loves you. More than you can possibly imagine. Bigger than you can possibly imagine. And you're more in Him than you could possibly imagine. And it's present tense. You just can't see it yet. So when you take communion... Take, take a little time before or after, you know, get your heart right, take communion. But then as we worship, try that exercise of saying, who do I think God is? And then have the humility to say, nope, it's bigger than that. And then you'll try and put another layer on it. Nope, that's not right either. Because you can't contain it. And listen to what He shows you in your spirit. And He'll meet you there and it's very hard to describe, but it's very, very true. I love you guys. Let's continue to worship together.